the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Dennis Prager here. Thanks for listening to the Daily Dennis Prager Podcast. To hear the entire three hours of my radio show, commercial-free, every single day, become a member of PragerTopia. You'll also get access to 15 years' worth of archives, as well as the Daily Show Prep. Subscribe at PragerTopia.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Dennis Prager Show, coming to you from New York City. Because this evening I am speaking at Columbia University. I was there once since I attended graduate school at Columbia in the 1970s. To the best of my knowledge, we have a full house tonight of students. If you, I, I don't know if there's any more room, but if you do know a student or faculty member, you have to be one to get in. They're not allowing outsiders in. And I think it was the right call because I didn't want outsiders to take the space of students. And they have at least 200 coming my dream would be to speak to a thousand Columbia students, but you know what? I don't live by dreams. It's part of the part of the reason that I am a happy guy. I live by reality, and I have a perspective. I'm getting to speak at Columbia to 200 students. That's very important. There was a demonstration here in New York City. There was a riot, actually. At a uh, at a kosher falafel, small kosher falafel restaurant. Oh no, it wasn't here. It was in Philadelphia, I believe. Alan, back uh, back home, give me the uh, the exact uh, the exact place because I played it for you yesterday, and I've been reading about it. It, it was a, a screaming mob in front of a, a, a kosher. Israeli falafel place, screaming at the the woman who owns it. I think her name is Goldie, and charging her with genocide, screaming genocide. We are uh, witnessing true uh, evil in our streets. The staggering error that I I called out an error when it happened obviously no avail of uh, allowing in vast numbers of people from the Middle East when President Trump said let's have a, a just a you know a, a time out here to at least vet the people coming in from the Middle East he was called an Islamophobe racist the whole left needless to say even liberals did the same thing well now we are living the consequences at Goldie's falafel place where mobs of, of people are screaming the gigantic lie that Israel is engaged in genocide. 
They have been talking about this genocide, by the way. This, this proceeds by years, what is happening now with the bombing of Gaza. It has nothing to do with the bombing of Gaza. Israel's existence, Israel fighting back when, when its civilians are slaughtered, is genocide. The rape of the word genocide uh, is something that the victims of genocide should actually protest, but, but people don't fight evil generally. They endure it and let others do the fighting. Genocide. My God. The greatest victims of the most organized genocide in human history are being charged with genocide. So here I am at Columbia, and let me tell you, here is a uh, here is a notice I just saw, and the the notice is here at Columbia University. Uh, let me read it to you if I can uh, find it here. Yeah, here we go. So listen, listen to this. This is truly uh, the way in which this works. The language they use. Significance of the October 7th Palestinian counteroffensive. Get that? This is a teaching and discussion at the Columbia School of Social Work. Tomorrow. Did you hear the description of October 7th? The slaughter, rape, torture, burning, uh, taking babies as hostages? It's called the Palestinian Counteroffensive at the sick place known as the Columbia School of Social Work. The race to the moral bottom among universities is an incredibly tight race. Probably a thousand are competing, but within the universities, the, well, it's hard to say, again, they compete with one another. Is the are the schools of social work the uh, the most evil accepting uh, morally screwed up places, or is it the departments of English and anthropology, gender studies, and so on? I don't know. It's very hard. Is it the schools of education? Again, it's a race to the moral bottom. Did you hear? I mean, I want you to remember this: October seventh counteroffensive. That is the way the Columbia University School of Social Work describes what happened on October 7th, a counteroffensive. Wow. So I'm going to tell the students tonight to attend it. They, they have to start fighting. You're, you're labeling the events of, of October 7th a counteroffensive? Jews deliberately murdered in a greater number than any day since since the Holocaust. And the rapes and the the burning alive of families. Just say, this is a sick session. We are attending a sick session. When the moral history, when the history of the West 
and of the United States and why, if they do fail, they failed, is ever written, this will be used as an anecdote, this meeting, as to the moral chaos the left has created in, in, the, uh, in America and in the Western world. The October 7th counteroffensive. What vile human beings in, in, uh, run the School of Social Work at Columbia and probably so many other places. The chant, I can't get over that chant. I want to talk to you for a moment about Pakistan. I seem to be among the only people, this is not praise, just a note, who has mentioned this on any regular basis. The proof that anti-Zionism, anti-Israel is all about Israel being Jewish the hatred that this is just the latest manifestation of the greatest hatred in history, Jew hatred. The proof is Pakistan. Pakistan was founded the same time Israel was, 1947, 1948. And Pakistan never existed in the history of the world. It was a gigantic place the size of Texas, ripped out of India to make another Muslim country because 49 was not enough. 48, perhaps, at the time, to make a 49th Muslim country. So let me read to you some data, all right? According to the final report of the United Nations Conciliation Commission, December 28, 1949, the 1948 war for Israel's independence created 726,000 Arab refugees and... I should note the same, virtually the same exact number of Jewish refugees from Arab countries. According to the United Nations High Commissioner on Refugees, the creation of Pakistan resulted. Now, I'd like you to guess the number. I'll repeat. According to the UN, 700,000 Palestinian refugees. According to the UN, same year, a Muslim country was founded, yanked out of India, which is a Hindu country. How many refugees do you think were created then? So we'll, we can double it, could say 700,000 Palestinian and 700,000 Jewish refugees. That's 1,400,000 refugees. How many refugees, according to the U.N., When Pakistan was created. Do I hear 5 million? Do I hear 10 million? Do I hear 14 million? Why is Pakistan valid and Israel is not? And there is only one answer. Only one. Because Israel is Jewish. We'll be back. My friends, I'm asking you to go online to DennisPrager.com and click on the Angel Tree Christmas banner to help make Christmas a reality for children with a mother or father in prison this holiday season. When you give today, your tax-deductible donation will combine 
with that of my other listeners to give 17,000 children of prisoners the joy of an angel tree Christmas, a special Christmas gift, plus the Bible and a personalized note from their incarcerated parent. It's a very beautiful thing this Christian organization is doing. You don't have to be a Christian to believe it's beautiful. So please, call 888-206-2801, or go to DennisPrager.com and click on the Angel Tree banner to bless a child this Christmas. Thank you. One eight Prager seven seven six eight seven seven two four three triple seven six. Remember the big march on behalf of uh, Israel in Washington a couple of weeks ago, and a, a Jewish group from Detroit had chartered a, pl- a little plane to get there, a jet plane to get there, and they were supposed to be picked up at the airport. The only way to get out was to have a scheduled pickup. And uh, most of the buses didn't show up. The drivers would not drive Jews to a pro-Israel demonstration. The same thing just happened in Toronto. They were going to have the capital of Canada, a pro-Israel demonstration, and the vast majority of the buses did not show up uh, to pick up uh, the people, the the Jews in Toronto who were going to go to Ottawa. I would love to know everything about those drivers. Uh, that That's very important. See, if they are native-born Canadians, th- then the rot is deeper than one can imagine. If they are the children of immigrants or immigrants from the Middle East who bring their Jew hatred with them to Canada, the United States, and Europe, it's bad, but at least it's confined, at least for the time being, to the left and to the immigrants from uh, the Arab and Muslim worlds. But uh, if if it extends considerably beyond that, then you are watching in real time the collapse of Western civilization. Very, very dark time at this time. And not to mention the domestic chaos that the left is creating, having nothing to do with Israel. And I, I believe that 2024 will see uh, terrible riots because the utter failure of governments, utter and total 100% abject failure, Uh, to stop the riots of 2020 has given the green light uh, to those who wish to destroy the society. They, They know that, especially in democratic governed states, they can do whatever the hell they want. Should, by some chance, Donald Trump be nominated and then elected, then you will see mayhem. They call January 6th an insurrection because they lie. Truth is not a left-wing value. But what you will see will make January 6th look like a walk in the park. 
and it, it will be very uh, a very great assessor of the state of American society, whether or not these vast rioters will get away with it. The odds are they will get away with it. What doesn't the left get away with? They tear down and tear down. People ask me, and I've asked me all the time, what animates these people? What do they want? The answer is they don't really know. They only know what they want to tear down. They have some image of this imaginary world where everybody will live in a small apartment. Few people will have a car. We will fly a few times a a year, if not even less than that. There will be no gardens because you will not want to water your garden. You will have instead a rock place if you have a home, but the odds are they don't want you to have a home. It, it, it will be a, a very dark world out there. And that's that's all they know because they're bored and they're secular. They're secular. Secularism plus affluence equals boredom. One of Dennis Prager's theorems of life. You heard of the Pythagorean theorem. This is the Pragerian theorem. Let's see what's new in the call world here. If I can get my mouse over, which is not easy. All right, let's see. Sean, not Sean, George in Camarillo, California. Hello. Hey, Dennis. Can you explain to me why Israel does not acknowledge the Armenian genocide? Sounds like they have the same policy as Turkey, the Muslim Turks. If you ask the Muslim Turks, that didn't, nothing happened. That was a problem from World War I. It was just a a consequence of World War I. And Israel says uh, it didn't happen. And I know why. They've already said it. They need Turkey's help. But isn't that wrong of uh, Israel not to acknowledge genocide? You were talking about genocide. (laughs) Well, it's interesting. Uh, I'll answer you directly in a moment, but I, I... I just want you to know, I mentioned yesterday the Armenian genocide, and I said if anybody should be angry at the left and the Arab world for calling what Israel is doing genocide, it's the Armenians, because it cheapens the word. Wait, 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 wait. Just tell me, do you agree with me on that? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so good. So you're right. You're absolutely right. I, I, uh, I have... I have 100% understanding of what you said, that Israel is afraid of alienating this very large power that uh, uh, next to it, uh, which has threatened Israel repeatedly with going to war if Turkey joins uh, the uh, Hamas and Hezbollah now, uh, the amount of destruction of Israeli lives is, is significant. Since you know the reason and I know the reason, I I don't know what to say to you. It is a very great moral quandary. There is no Israeli who denies that what the Turks have done to the Armenians. By the way, Israel doesn't deny it either. They just don't call it genocide. But you and I both understand the reason. It's a bad world. Back in a moment. 
MyPillow is excited to bring you their biggest bedding sale ever, just in time for Christmas. Get the Giza Dream Bed Sheets for as low as $29.98. A set of pillowcases only $9.98. Rejuvenate your bed with a MyPillow mattress topper for as low as $99.99. They also have blankets in a variety of sizes, colors, and styles. They even have blankets for your pets. Get duvets, quilts, down comforters, body pillows, bolster pillows, and so much more. All with the biggest discounts ever. They're also extending their money-back guarantee for Christmas until March 1st, 2024, making them the perfect gifts for your friends, your family, and everyone you know. So go to MyPillow.com and use the promo code Prager or call 800-761-6302 and you'll get huge discounts on all MyPillow bedding products, including the Giza Dream bed sheets for as low as $29.98 and get all your shopping done now while quantities last. MyPillow.com, promo code Prager. everybody, welcome to the Dennis Prager Show. Big day for me, because I'm speaking of Columbia University this evening. Here I am in New York City with the great, inimitable Eric Hansen at the controls here. Eric is a diehard New York Rangers fan and lives in a constant state of disappointment. In fact, he, he asked me to pick up some antidepressants on the way in just because of the Rangers and I, but I, I wouldn't, I'm not his supplier. I just felt it was not, not right. Great to be here, folks. I grew up in New York city and I will admit that it played a formidable role, a formative role and formidable role in my, in shaping me because I really used the culture of New York city in my high school and college years. I went to a, a, a concert or a play or a show virtually every week. So it, it, I really used it, and it was, it was a, a terrific thing. I went to Carnegie Hall. When I grew up, do you know, you could go backstage at any of these events, of, at least the concerts, even Carnegie Hall. You just walk backstage to meet the conductor. I grew up in a very different country than the one we have now. There were real flaws in America because human beings are flawed. But if you compare America to the world rather than to utopia, this, this was an amazingly wonderful place. And then I dated, you know what? Last week I came up with an important realization. I shared with you. You can really date the the decline of the country to between 53, 1953 or 55 maybe, 55 and 67. That's when it happened. The United States fought a war in Korea to prevent South Korea from becoming communist, like North Korea. And Americans, although they had misgivings about going to war so soon after World War II, there were no massive riots against the war. There was an understanding that communism was an evil, and America fought evil. 
And then the exact same thing, I mean, is incredible when you think about it. Again, America fought on behalf of the southern half of a country in Asia to prevent it becoming communist like the northern half. In this case, Vietnam. And then there were massive riots. And America started being spelled with a K as if it were a fascist country. And the rest, as they say, is history. Well, I remember the riots. I was at Columbia in the early 70s. The the Vietnam War was, was still taking place. And students would take over the offices of the of of deans the offices of the president uh, and other administrators and i remember they were never punished they weren't even forcefully removed and i was in a shock i was absolutely stunned at the cowardice in the face of the students And that began my long trip into realizing that the academic world, that academia had deteriorated. And that in order to be a president or a dean of a college, one of the criteria was you had to be a coward. There were a few exceptions. Larry Summers at Harvard was an exception. But by and large, there were almost no exceptions. So what do I tell the students tonight at Columbia? I'll tell you one one thing that is uh, worthy of telling them is just to read. I won't be doing it, but I will read to you now this phenomenal piece in the the Wall Street Journal by a a professor emeritus, in other words, a a retired professor. So uh, that's that's one of the reasons he could write it because he's not not he doesn't have to face being fired. This is a professor. Let's see where was well, where is he? In a moment, I'm going to have it for you. He uh, he was he taught, I believe, German actually. Well, as usual, there are so many pieces up, and I, this one, Alan, if you're there, I, I want this piece by the Wall Street uh, in the Wall Street Journal, and he he just describes how the university is the root of our issues, as it is. This is where the bad ideas came from. One of the reasons here is a here's a toughie. Why did the university? produce so many moral idiots. I mean, truly moral idiots. It's a, it's a term. I don't use it just as a cute term to say you're an idiot. Moral idiot is a special type of idiot. It's one who cannot think about right and wrong, about good and evil in any coherent manner. So one reason is, at, in the university, you don't pay for bad ideas. See, if you're in business and you have a bad idea, 
and you have a bad idea in business, then it doesn't work. So you, you go out of business. But if you have a bad idea in academia, you pay no price. You can be pro-socialism. Socialism is a farce. Socialism has almost always hurt people. And it frequently degenerated into communism, or the lines were blurred. If you really want to help people, give them freedom. That is, that is the best thing you can give to people. Government should be there to protect your freedom. That should be its primary purpose. But now, with, with, with of course, the only university president to ever be president, Woodrow Wilson, the decline began, and progressive thought took over the White House, already starting from the university. And that's the turn of the century, in the beginning of the 20th century the end of the 19th century. If you have a bad idea and you're a university professor and many people die horrible deaths as a result of your idea, you're still a professor. That's right. In business, you have a horrible idea and people die from it, you may go to prison. University, you have a horrible idea, and many people die from it. You go from associate professor to full professor. (laughs) That's what happens. The the contest for the the worst university is is there's no it's not knowable. There is no worst. Hundreds of pro-Hamas protesters ignite smoke bombs at the University of Pennsylvania, chant Intifada Revolution. There you go. Pro-Hamas demonstrators Sunday night took to the streets of West Philadelphia, the neighborhood known as University Cities, you city, home to Ivy League School, University of Pennsylvania, igniting smoke bombs with the colors of the Palestinian flag, and chanting Intifada Revolution. These are bored students. That's all they are. They found a cause. They are in the streets of an American city calling for rebellion. As Libs of TikTok's Chaya Rachik writes, imagine being a Jewish student there. Intifada Revolution. This is what our universities produce in its students. University of Pennsylvania is where they forbade the female swimmers from objecting to having a trans woman, Leah Thomas, swim and compete against them and win. What a what a university. So the professor who wrote this absolutely devastating piece is a professor emeritus, means he's no longer, I guess, teaching. He's emeritus of German literature at UC Santa Cruz, one of the most radical of the UC, University of California colleges. Higher ed has become a threat to America. 
Our corrupt, radical universities feed every scourge from censorship and crime to anti-Semitism. The author is John Ellis. America faces a formidable range of calamities, crime out of control, borders in chaos by design, children poorly educated while sexualized and politicized against parental opposition, unconstitutional censorship, a press that does government PR rather than oversight, our institutions and corporations debased in the name of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and more. To these has been added an outbreak of virulent anti-Semitism. Every one of these degradations can be traced wholly or in large part to a single source, the corruption of higher education by radical political activists. Children's test scores have plummeted because college education departments train teachers to prioritize social justice over education. That's a great point. That's right. As I have said all of my life, broadcasting, 40 years, they don't learn anything, or they virtually learn nothing, because ideology trumps knowledge. If the, if the average college student's student can't identify Auschwitz and 95% can't identify Gulag, what the hell do they learn? Isn't learning about the greatest outbursts of evil of the last hundred years, would you say that that is significant? In high school, they don't even learn cursive. When I sign my books to to teenagers, I ask them if they can read non-print. Do I have to print with best wishes or whatever I'll write? Their name. So that was charge one. Charge two. Censorship started with one-party campuses shutting down conservative voices. That's right. I have no idea whether I'll be able to speak tonight at Columbia. No idea. Generally speaking, I have been able to do so on college campuses. Many conservatives have not been. They've been screamed down. Some have been attacked. Others, get they get no speech done because they can't even talk over the din. The coddling of criminals originated with academia's devotion to Michel Foucault's idea that criminals are victims, not victimizers. Isn't that a common theme of the left, especially if you are a criminal of color? The drive to separate children from their parents begins in long-standing campus contempt for the suburban home and nuclear family. Oh, what a brilliant point. That's right. They have such contempt on the left for the suburban home and the nuclear family. The mockery of the picket, white picket fence with a two-car garage and your own home 
Oh, my God, you can't get more white supremacist than that. And the nuclear family, that is heteronormativity. The idea that the ideal is a man and a woman married and having children? <laughs> it's a form of bigotry. That's all it is. Radicalized college journalism departments promote far-left advocacy. That's right. That's what they do. Open borders reflect pro-globalism and anti-nation state sentiment among radical professors. That's right, too. They want the international community to run our country. They want Washington to run our country not the local government, or not, God forbid, you. DEI started as a campus ruse ruse to justify racial quotas. Campus anti-Semitism grew out of ideologies like anti-colonialism, anti-capitalism, and intersectionality. God, is that ever true? Never have college campuses exerted so great or so destructive an influence. Once an indispensable support of our advanced society, academia has become a cancer metastasizing through its vital organs. The radical left is the cause, most obviously through the one-party campuses having graduated an entire generation of young Americans indoctrinated with their ideas. That's why they don't want us to speak. They fear, correctly, that 90 minutes from an articulate conservative could undo four years of indoctrination. And there are other ways. Academia has a monopoly on training for the most influential professions. The destructive influence of campus schools of education and journalism is matched in the law, medicine, social work, etc. You should see the piece. We'll put it up at DennisPrager.com from today's Wall Street Journal. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. For many years, uh, I have been talking about MediaLine.org, probably the the most objective 
there are many fine sources of news from the Middle East, but I, I the, the one that I go to most is Media Line. One of the founders, one of the co-founders is Felice Friedson, and she's in, on the line with me from Israel. So, Felice, uh, thank you, uh, obviously, for coming on. I got so many questions for you. So here's one that is is uh, not the, the first one that most people would think of, but I like to pose to you. I keep reading, tell me if you think this is accurate, that the great majority of Palestinians, West Bank and Gaza, support Hamas. Do you believe that that is accurate? Well, that's a good way to start. Thanks, Dennis, for having me. Honestly, it's a tough thing to assess. I will say that many of the Palestinians are for Hamas in terms of the respectability they think they gained in terms of actually accomplishing something, which is the way that maybe Palestinians might look at it. They feel that Fatah hasn't gained anything, and here they see Hamas is getting media attention globally. And many, unfortunately, many will uh, will say, yes, they do stand by what Hamas has done, but there are others who won't. To really be able to break that down, I think, really involves deep analysis of what that means in terms of defending Hamas. So, in other words, between defending, you, you're dividing the, the, the pro-Hamas people into defending October 7th and defending Hamas generally? Do I read you correctly? I think that's correct. It is really, one meal really needs to differentiate between, I guess, the ideology of what Hamas stands for in terms of strength is the way some of the Palestinians are looking at and not looking at the massacres and the, the things that they did in the destruction and the rapes and the kidnapping. And I don't think something abominable by any means. Some just are saying they actually accomplished something on behalf of the Palestinian people. There are unfortunately that many who do stand with Hamas in terms of the atrocities. I mean, when you have up to 50,000 fighters, you know, some say 30,000, some say 50,000, because, you know, there are those that align themselves with, and even if they're not the fighters, they're people that are involved with Hamas on a lower level, you know, running the hospitals, running the institutions. So you have to really break down all the different elements to understand how is Hamas working within Gaza. So you, you have a lot of contacts with Palestinians. Have you had any since October 7th? Yes, I have. And there are those that don't want to speak on record. There are those that will speak off record. We have a piece coming out tomorrow that's extremely important in discussing what the future holds. There are many Palestinians of different mindsets, just like you have Israelis of different mindsets. There are those still of the peace camp, and then there are those who are totally fanatic, who believe the only answer is the destruction of Israel. So the answer is yes on all scores. Okay, so your assessment, back to my original question, uh, but, I'll, but I'll pose it somewhat differently, and I'm not, I'm not looking for 
a specific answer. I want just your answer. In fact, I I I hope it's a good answer. I that's my only hope. But my my understanding is that most Palestinians are much more interested in destroying Israel than in having their own state. Is that wrong? And you can tell me if I'm if you think I'm wrong. I have no problem with that. In fact, I hope I'm wrong. Dennis, I have to say to you that today um, I feel very differently than maybe I felt a decade ago because you have so many of the young people that have grown up on hate. Well, either hate and no hope. There are many things that people will say from from different perspectives. And the bottom line is neither are good. If you have no hate, no hope, and you have hate, then what are you are left with? What are you left with? The reality is that the Palestinians have had a very weak leadership. And tomorrow, if someone says, what's going to happen when this is all over, they don't have leadership to really forge forward to come up with a solution. I think that's one of the biggest problems that we are facing now that Israel is facing, that the Americans are facing, and what is the day after look like? And you're really getting Okay, back with you. Okay, hold on, Felice. Felice Friedson, MediaLine.org. Back with her in a moment. Speaking to Felice Friedson in Israel, she is co-founder, head of the MediaLine.org, which is about as honest and accurate a reporting from the Middle East as I know of. Again, MediaLine.org. Talking about the Palestinians, she has a tremendous amount of contact with Palestinians, so she's the right person to ask. So, again, uh, I asked, my last question was, my take is, at this moment, more Palestinians are interested in destroying Israel than in having a state alongside of Israel. And you said you might not have said that 10 years ago, but a generation of Palestinians has been raised with both hate and no hope. Do I summarize you correctly? You summarized me correctly in the sense that things have changed. But yet, if you look at the Israel side, which the Palestinians are looking to Israel and seeing what are they saying. Even today, the Israel Democracy Institute had a poll on exactly this issue. And 52% of the respondents were in favor of Israel pursuing a two-state solution. And the right were against it by 21%. Now, you have to always look at a poll based on who was conducting a poll and for every poll how you ask a question. But I really think that if things calmed down and leaders felt they, they were put into a corner, whether it's the Americans, the Europeans pushing, so including the Abraham Accord countries, that if there were the right leaders at the right moment, you would still see some kind of way and path forward that these people would try to push. I wouldn't use the word two-state at the moment. It's some kind of reconciliation that would lead towards that. And that's where this was happening alongside the Abraham Accords. And you can never bury that because even Saudi Arabia, who Israel wants to normalize with, will demand that. Right. So what is, what is, I guess I should know the answer, but I don't. What is the both unofficial and official position of the supporters of of Netanyahu? Is it that there should never be a Palestinian state? What is their position? 
There were those that don't want a Palestinian state that never wanted a Palestinian state. There were others that know that they can't function and actually continue as a state in Israel, doing what they're doing, normalizing with more countries without developing some kind of plan for the Palestinian. And the reality is that I think, and I've always opined this, that the economic section and the economic sector and the business people was where it always was moving forward. And then it came somewhat to a halt. It wasn't moving fast enough. People were losing hope. And I, I still feel that if the economics would do better and that the Palestinians would prosper, that all of this from the Palestinian side, meaning the West Bank, we're not talking about Gaza, might be different. Enter Gaza. Enter what happened. And many of the young Palestinians were aligning and are aligning with Hamas. Just look at the social media. That's where the danger lies. So I again state educating differently, bringing hope, changing a path, because nobody is going to take the Palestinians in Gaza. Egypt is not going to. Jordan is not going to. And Israel isn't going to. So then you're left with, what is your solution, Dennis? And it's not an easy answer. Well, I mean, I was for a two-state solution all of my life, or at least, yeah, all of my life. I want Israel to have its Jewish state and its democratic state and not rule over anybody. I mean, this is not exactly radical stuff. But I gave up. I gave up because I do believe that most Palestinians want peace, but they want peace with no Israel, not peace with Israel. So I, I don't. it's a quandary that has no solution to the best of my knowledge. If one side does want the other side dead, the theme of my opening PragerU video from 10 years ago on the Middle East. I, I, I don't know what can change. If that indeed is the case, then Israel has no choice. And they can't obviously get into bed literally with another unit, an entity, to be, and give them complete statehood if their security is completely at stake. And that's in the given. I think that the answer there will only be told over the next few years of where that is at the moment. I don't think we can answer that issue right now. I think we can answer the Gazan issue. I think there are very few people who employ Gazans that trust that they would ever bring a Gazan back in to be employed in Israel. I just was there by the Gaza border yesterday with someone who was a peacenik who was held up in his shelter with his wife as the terrorists were shooting all the young people because there was a path from his house that was a direct path to the homes of all where these young people lived. And they shot off one by one. It was just incredible. I was with European parliamentarians who were witnessing this and were taking this back home. They were in shock. And there I say to you, 100%. There's no way. In terms of the West Bank, I think that the jury's still out. It's not over yet, but the door is closing. 
And unless leadership will stand up and say October 7th happened and that rape happened and that there were hostages that were mistreated and killed and maimed and murdered, then no, you don't have a partner. And until that day where you see that happening, you're 100% correct. Too bad. <laughs> I didn't want to be 100% correct. Right. Go so, to medialine.org, everybody. It's the most uh, comprehensive and, I think, objective analysis of the Middle East. Felice will speak soon, and thank you for your work. Thank you very much, Dennis. Thank you. This is the Ultimate Issues Hour, the third hour every Tuesday. It's impossible to overstate the importance of the Ultimate Issues Hour. It's, in fact, the non-clarity on the big issues of life that has led us to the terrible state that we are in right now in so many arenas of life. So, this is it. We talk about the big issues. There's no bigger issue. There may be many tied for biggest, but there's no bigger one than this. What is being done to young people in the name of transitioning. So I have an eminent psychiatrist on who has written a truly critically important book, Lost in Transnation. Good title, isn't it? Child Psychiatrist's Guide Out of the Madness. Madness is the perfect word. People look at the Salem witch trials and go, how could they have been so crazy? I would say that the argument for witches is no less valid than the argument of transitioning people into the other sex, something that is not possible. It is not possible. I... You could disprove this movement, but you couldn't disprove witches. Maybe they really existed. We are living in an age of madness. It takes guts for a psychiatrist to be a whistleblower. It takes guts for anybody to be. Dr. Miriam Grossman has courage, and she is my guest the book is Lost in Transnation. Transnation, not translation. Julie Hartman is with me, as she is now, often on the third hour of my show. Good to have you, Julie. Thank you. This is a big deal to have Miriam Grossman on. It's a special woman. So, before anything else, Miriam, Dr. Grossman, I'll, I'll interchangeably call you both. <laughs> Could you tell my listeners what Barnes & Noble has decided to do about your book? Yes, of course I will, and thank you so much for having me on. Well, Barnes & Noble is not selling my book. Uh, if you go to their website and try to order it, you get a response that says we are currently out of stock for availability. Uh, if you go to a actual store and ask for it, they tell you the same thing. We're out of stock. 
and this began the day or I heard about it the day after the book came out, which was last Tuesday. So I first heard a report. People started to email me and message me through my Twitter account that they were walking into Barnes Noble, Barnes and Noble, or they were going online and trying to buy it. And they were getting that message and they were saying it sold so well that they don't have any copies left. So I asked my wonderful publisher, um, Tony Lyons from Skyhorse, who's a warrior for free speech. And he looked it up and told me that actually Barnes and Nobles didn't, didn't order any copies. So what they're doing is telling people that they're out of stock when there never was any stock. Wait, you're telling me a left-wing institution would lie? Uh, uh, I'm, I'm entering cognitive dissonance. This is well, really... So wait, is Amazon selling it? Amazon is selling it. However, on Amazon, last time I checked, there were about 10 bogus titles mimicking my book, trying to get people to buy that bogus book. And then, and one of them was a paperback. So it was a bit cheaper. And people who bought the so-called paperback, which doesn't exist, there's no paperback, would you know, they would write to me and say, well, I was excited to open it, but when I opened it, it was a book on office management. So that's another sort of scam that's going on on Amazon. I don't know what the motivation is of those people that are putting up those bogus books. No, we do know it's the motivation. Probably it's financial. To, no, no, it's to hurt you. It's not financial. They're not going to make a, a big uh, amount of money on a paperback uh, on office management. But I, I'm looking at right right now, I want to see something. Lost in Nation, Grossman. Let's see what Trans, comes up. Transmission. Yeah. Uh, oh, you're right. I'm sorry. You're right. My, 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 my boo-boo. Transna- Transnation, right. Okay, so let's see. So the first thing that comes up is, in fact, the actual book on Amazon. I'm happy to tell you that. Okay. Lost in Translation, and the actual book is coming up. When was it? When did it, you go on. It says uh, forward by Jordan Peterson. Yeah. Okay, that's the actual book. It came out July 18th. Mm-hmm. Okay. So this is a child psychiatrist guide out of the madness. So let's talk about entering the madness. Let's start with a big macro question. Since I was in college, I have assumed that most psychiatrists are fools. Yet I have great admiration for psychiatry, and and as you know, one of my dearest friends is a psychiatrist. Two of my dearest friends, actually. Uh, is, Is that an unfair judgment on my part about your profession? Did you say, I want to make sure I understand. You used, you said 
fools. I said, I think I have believed since college most psychiatrists are fools. It began when they said that uh, when, uh, I don't know how many it was, hundreds, a thousand, signed a petition that Barry Goldwater was mentally ill because they didn't like his politics. Barry Goldwater was not mentally ill. They perverted science by making a, a, a therapeutic assessment of someone they never met. And the silence of the psychiatric group about using psychiatry to uh, place Soviet dissidents in psychiatric wards, nothing that I have experienced in my life has made me admire the American Psychiatric Society or whatever it's called, Academy, whatever it is, uh, or, or it's the profession. There are any number of terrific individual psychiatrists, but tell me if my assessment is overly harsh. Well, the way that I look at it uh, is that my profession, my specialty of medicine is particularly liable to influence, you know, ideological influence. So I don't think it's a matter of being so much foolish as it is a matter Oh, into mental health in general are not people who have strong faith. And so their faith becomes psychiatry, psychology. And, you know, there's no, you're, you're not going to find truth in psychiatry. You're not going to find a moral compass, a phrase that I learned from you, um, in psychiatry and in mental health. And so I think that it's easy for people who have no moral compass of their own, no real uh, beliefs in it, uh, that they then turn to psychiatry and they make it their God hmm. and they really lose lose their way as they have with transgenderism, which is probably the best example uh well perhaps the prefrontal lobotomies was just as bad but in terms of our current day the way that my profession has lost its way and is bringing harm to so many young people and their families which is what we'll talk about when we come back dr marion grossman lost in translation it's up at dennisprager.com Ultimate Issues Hour on the Dennis Prager Show. My guest is a courageous human being, which immediately puts her in the very little narrow part of the bell curve of humanity. She's a psychiatrist, a children's psychiatrist. She's writing about the, uh, well, I tell you, Jordan Peterson in his, uh, in his introduction put it, the criminal misbehavior of the medical professionals and counselors perpetrating the gender-affirming care travesty. Criminal behavior. So here's a child psychiatrist. Okay, so let's get to the nitty-gritty. You say you could, uh, you're giving a guide out of the madness. So let's say there is someone listening, and I have no doubt that someone is listening, whose child came home in the last few months maybe today, and said she's, she's let's say, 11 years old, 
or eight years old, uh, mom, dad, usually just mom, I, th- I suspect that's an interesting question unto itself. Uh, I'm a boy. What should the parents say? Well, Dennis, I have an entire uh, of exactly that uh, uh, conversation, the first few conversations that a parent can have with their child when the child comes home and makes such an announcement. And uh, to boil it down to just a few essential elements, that those first conversations are not a time to, to argue. Those conversations are a time, number one, to listen, to be curious, to learn from your child. Because if your child, it means that they, they are in distress of one sort or, or another. They are choosing a new identity Either they're running away from their masculinity or femininity, or they're running to this new persona. And there are reasons for that. So one of the big differences in my approach and what I'm telling parents, as opposed to the narrative, the ongoing uh, gender, quote unquote, affirming narrative, When any person, especially a child, a vulnerable child, decides that they have to be somebody else. Now, in those first few conversations, the parent wants to just be present and be curious and ask a lot of questions. Is the child going to know the answers to those questions? Half the time, no. Or they're going to give answers that don't make any sense. But that's okay, because the child needs the connection with the parent. The parent may think that that's not at all just running away and doesn't want that relationship. That is not true. The child wants approval on a deep level. The child wants the parent's approval. And they are nervous about having this conversation. So in the first few conversations, and I explain in detail in the book, to try and be calm, not easy. You can freak out later, but do not freak out in front of your kid. And do not say, try not to say, what are you talking about? This is insane stuff. That is not, you you wanna try to not go in that direction when you're speaking to your child because that's gonna be pushing your child away. And the key to surviving this ordeal of having a kid in distress about their sex, the key is actually the relationship with the parent. Not an easy thing because the the parent is on a tightrope. It's, a, it's very difficult because on the one hand, you do want to be there for your child, supportive, you want to be present and you want to be loving, but you do not want to be agreeing with the ideas that your child has been indoctrinated with. Yeah, but it you sounded not- like in the beginning, you're not in any way refuting the idea. 
So you are agreeing with it. No, no. What what you're doing is you're saying, I want to learn more. I see that this is really important to you. Uh, am I going to start calling you by a different name? No. And and there's there's a way that that important. We went through a lot of, uh, uh, you know, that was a big decision for us to pick your name. I am not going to be making that decision right now. I am not going to be calling you by different pronouns, but we're going to keep talking about it. And most importantly, I want to learn more about what this is all about for you. I'm going to do all the research. I want to learn. I want to become an expert in this issue. Right now, I'm not an expert. Okay, so how long do you you carry on uh, this approach? Because every day that you don't say, well, in fact, God or nature made you a girl, or since we're using the girl as an example, it's usually girls saying they're boys. Every day you are obviously adding to the credibility of her belief that she's a boy. Do you do this for a week, a month, six months? How long do you do this for? No, because just because you are listening and you're not contradicting and having uh, conflict over it doesn't mean you're agreeing. Sit calmly and listen to what their child is saying and disagree with it deeply and have a deep emotional reaction to it without necessarily uh, uh, making that the focus of their interaction at the time. The focus should be on maintaining some sort of loving connection. Are now, you, yes, al- you, are know, you but- allowed to say at, any, at that point even, uh, I, 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 I believe you're a girl? Well, yes. I mean, there's no. This is not a. Cult. All right. Tell me the answer to that when we get back. I, I want. I want to. I want to push your book, <laughs> Lost in Transnation: A Child Psychiatrist's Guide Out of the Madness. Doctor Miriam Grossman. Miriam Grossman is a child psychiatrist dealing with about as tough an issue as exists today in that arena. Lost in Transnation is the name, A Child Psychiatrist's Guide Out of the Madness. All right, so I have been pushing you because I so respect you and so want to hear what you have to say. I gave you the imaginary example of somebody coming to their parent, a girl, 8 or 11, I'm really a boy, and what should the parents say? So the first thing is I'm reviewing. The first thing is you have to maintain your child's desire to communicate with you in this in this regard, correct? Is that a fair summary? Absolutely. You want to be present and child, yeah. Okay. Uh, at the same time, you can say, I, be- you, I love you the way you are and you are a girl. Can you say that? Well, of course. Listen, I'm not. This is this is not, you know, a recipe that everything is measured out perfectly. I want. I'm giving parents just basic. 
sort of guideposts that they should follow, um, that they sh that they might be prepared should this happen in their family. So it is for families that are currently going through this catastrophe, and it is a catastrophe, but it's more, even more so for parents who have yet, who you know, who might be facing this in their future, and for them to be prepared so that they're not blindsided like the hundreds of parents that I've talked to who 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 just didn't 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 know even what to say and had no understanding of where this is coming from. You see, I discovered this uh, gender ideology, this uh, belief system because that is what it is. It, there's, there's no science or medicine that's behind it. Belief system. And I discovered it uh, maybe 15 years ago when I was studying sex education. And I realized that as part of sex education that was being put out there by Planned Parenthood and CECUS and other organizations, the kids were being told that there's no such thing as, the, as a, a, bi, a male-female binary. That is an oppressive, uh, th that, that's an oppressive idea. There's many different sexes. Sex is on a spectrum. Uh, sex is assigned at birth. Now, of course, you know, Dennis, and Congress a few weeks ago, kind of appalling, right, that a doctor has to testify in the House of Representatives that sex is established at conception when the sperm makes the egg. It is not randomly assigned at birth by a doctor or a midwife. That is Orwellian language that uh, manipulates us and children especially to believe that male and female are random, insignificant uh, 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 decisions made by someone that hardly even knows what's going on. And that your, your, your body, the sex of your body uh, is essentially insignificant. It's how you feel, how you experience yourself in other words, it's a philosophy that promotes disembodiment. Disembodiment, being separate from your body. That is what our kids are being indoctrinated to believe is healthy and wonderful, when it's really the opposite. We don't want anyone feeling disembodied. That in itself is a psychiatric problem a destructive way of thinking. It's an irrational belief system that's been around for quite a long time. I tried to warn parents about it in a book that I wrote called You're Teaching My Child What? in 2009. Unfortunately, that book was considered a uh, extreme religious right uh, you know, screed because it was published by Regnery and unfortunately, it took this, this calamity that we're in right now, in which we have tens of thousands of kids and parents who are being destroyed, destroyed by this. That's right. <clears throat> I, uh, I'm going to ask you when we come back, wouldn't, would it help if every one of these kids met a young person who regretted having transitioned? Are we using these people, of whom there are more and more, 
every day. The book is Lost in Transnation. Miriam Grossman is the author. So, this whole issue has, of course, gripped me, this, this madness, this evil madness of telling children you're really the other sex when, when, and when they say it. Julie, you have said that you, you have had someone in your life who did this? Yes. I had someone who was, um, at one time in my life, I was very close to. She was born a girl, and now she is a boy and has undergone all of the surgeries, including the double mastectomy. And, you know, nobody, almost nobody talks about it. I have great, great sympathy and empathy for the friends and the family. When your close friend becomes a boy, that's jolting to you, isn't it? I can't imagine what it must be like for the parents. With this individual, we were no longer close when she made the transition. It had nothing to do with her transition. It was just our lives were on different paths. And I didn't, she wasn't really a part of my life anymore. But I think her parents view it as a death. And of course they do. Can you imagine well, what that must be like? Well, their daughter died. Yes. That's correct. Well, what's interesting, and I, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, because people talk about trans men or trans women. In that label... You are acknowledging mm-hmm. that that individual is not a real man or a real woman. That's right. They're a trans man or a trans woman. And so I, I, I just wanted to share that with the audience because that's something yes, that I Yes, why do they in, use any term? Right. If you're, because Megan Rapino said recently, I, I believe that trans women are real women. If they were real women, you wouldn't have to classify them as trans women. They would just be women. Right. Women are women. Yes. Have you known anyone, Dennis, no. who's transitioned? No. Wow. I, I, only once in my life, I've told this story, I conducted an orchestra, and I mentioned to the, it was, it was a rehearsal, and I told the conductor, the permanent conductor, that I found it interesting that the timpanist was a woman, because almost always timpanists are men. The drummers, timpanist is the classical term for the drums. And he said, well, that's a transsexual. That was the term used then, which was a more accurate term in any event. But it doesn't matter. Well, you're living, dear Julie, in a very sick time. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for you. I'm sorry for me. The book uh, was lo- is Lost in Transnation. Transnation is two words. And I will see you tomorrow. Thank you, Julie. Thank you. See you soon. Dennis Prager here. Thanks for listening to the Daily Dennis Prager Podcast. To hear the entire three hours of my radio show, commercial-free, every single day, become a member of PragerTopia. You'll also get access to 15 years' worth of archives, as well as the daily show prep. Subscribe at PragerTopia.com. 
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.